You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to finish this chapter today starting in verse 13. Chapter Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 17. But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Through this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. When I think about the book of Luke, I remember the women arriving at Jesus' tomb to care for his body. And the already risen Lord sends an angel to tell them, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. Jesus, even after his resurrection, he was patient with his disciples to repeat his instructions to them. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That's exactly what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 5, that we saw last sermon. Have you ever asked this question to someone? Or has someone ever asked you this, asked you this question? Something like, didn't I tell you already? Usually the person asking this question is also the person answering the question, saying, of course I did. I already told you this. And usually, this is how we handle parenting, marriage, friendships, by repeating lessons. Because repetition is the key to learning. However, patience in repetition, that's a virtue. (laughs) When we are impatient in our corrections, the other person just gets even more confused in their mistakes, thinking that we are giving up on them. We can instruct, we can teach, we can model, we can repeat. And our family members, they may learn or they may not. But how many ministries, how many marriages, how many family relationships, how many friendships ended for this very reason? If only we had stopped, taken a deep breath, and remembered they are my family. He or she is my friend. I love them. So, repeat. And we turn to the basics of our relational connection to that person. So that we can remember that we ought not to give up on them. We have to keep teaching. That we will eventually learn. Or at least we hope they will. So if you were here with us for the last sermon of this series. You're going to remember the difficult and sad tone. The beginning that we found in the beginning of chapter 2. That's because Paul was rebuking, teaching the Thessalonians again. And we saw how these brothers and sisters in the church thought that the day of the Lord had already come because of their distresses in life, because of their persecutions and their afflictions. 
But Paul reminded them that the persecutions were but one aspect of that day. It was actually going to get worse. The rebellion, the Antichrist still have to come. And we saw that his words of encouragement in chapter 1 would just be blurred by this sadness and this state of destruction that Paul is teaching them at the end of verse 12. But Paul does not stop in a tone of impatience and sadness. He doesn't stop there. He returns to the gospel. And that's where we are today. Our passage today, verses 13 through 17, is Paul again encouraging the Thessalonians to persevere in his instructions. But no longer with shaken minds, but to stand firm in the immovable God of their salvation and in his word. The solution to their state of alarm is a return to the truth that they belong to God and that God will never let them go. And they can stand firm because the person of God, the works of God, and the word of God provide everlasting security to those he loves. So the relationship that God has with his people is the reason that he will never give up on them until he comes. He's always going to be patient. So we will see this morning how Paul instructs us to stand firm in our faith based on three pairs of work in God, of God in us and for us. So first, we're going to see how God chooses us and calls us. Second, we are going to see how God speaks and writes. And third, we are going to see how God comforts and establishes. So let us first consider how we are to stand firm in the God who chooses and calls. We find this in verse 13 and 14. But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is somewhat common practice for a couple to start investing in a college fund as soon as they find out they're pregnant. The money will pile up, generate interest, and in time, serve its purpose. And some parents try to even keep it a secret until the senior year of high school to reveal that to the child. There was nothing that that child did to deserve such a wonderful gift other than being conceived in the womb. But the parents, what the parents did in the past for this child will bear fruit in the future. And I believe that something very similar is happening in these two first verses here but in a divine scale, outside of time. The Thessalonians were forgetting that their future rewards are dependent on God's past investment in their adoption, not in their own works of worrying, fear, and their state of alarm. God had chosen them from eternity past as first fruits to be saved. That's verse 13. Therefore, their response to the call of the gospel and enjoyment of eternal glory is guaranteed. That's verse 14. So Paul frames these verses as a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving that covers the whole work of creation from eternal, the eternal past, the eternal choice of God in the past to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in the world to come in the future. And many theologians say that these little verses, these two verses, is Paul's systematic theology in miniature. It's him explaining the whole theology of Scripture in two verses. But let's look at each of these verses at a time. 
First, we're going to see in verse 13 that the doctrine of election is the basis of our salvation. The doctrine of election is the basis of our salvation. Paul quickly transitions from this horrific state of those who believe what is false to the wonderful reality of those who believe in the truth. He ends this chapter as he started the letter in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 3, with thanksgiving, being thankful for them. But the main difference is the reason for his thanksgiving. While in chapter 1, he was thankful for the evidence of their salvation, meaning they were growing their faith, they were loving one another, they were evidencing they were saved. Now he's thankful for the salvation itself. He's thankful because they are saved. So here's a quick lesson for us. Always be thankful for your salvation and for the salvation of others. The work of the gospel in our lives must always be on our lips when we pray. As you pray through the directory of our church, start with a prayer of thanksgiving for their salvation, saying, thank you, thank you, Lord. Thank you because you saved them in Christ before the beginning of time. Thank you because salvation is real and they are saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you do, as you're thankful, make sure that you rightly understand what salvation is. Look again at verse 13. But we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Some original manuscripts, they read the word first fruits here as from the beginning. So instead of first fruits, they're going to read from the beginning or in the beginning. And the copiers were making an interpretive decision here. Those who say first fruits believe that Paul is alluding to the Thessalonians being his first converts in that region. So just like Israel was the people of God, the first fruits of God. While those who say from the beginning, they believe that Paul is referring to God's choosing them before the foundation of the world in according with his theology in Ephesians 1.4. So I believe that from the beginning is Paul's original meaning here. Since it's consistent with his doctrine of election in Ephesians, 5, in Ephesians and in Romans. And also fitting with this thematic theme of the letter of eschatology, of eternity, of time. So it makes sense that he's using another time meaning here. But in God's sovereignty, pay attention. Even the meanings of these words that the, the copiers are trying to understand which word he was using, even this dispute is God sovereignly saying these words are related to one another. Because first fruits and from the beginning, they're related. The first fruits come at the beginning of the harvest. So, and even in scripture, these two words, first fruits and from the beginning, are words that to use to describe Jesus' eternality and resurrection. Paul says about Jesus' resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then he says in Colossians 1.18, that Jesus is the beginning. So Jesus is both. So in this verse, we see that Jesus, God the Son, in his eternal divinity, loved us by abiding in God the Father's eternal choice to save us. He entered time as a man proving his love for us by dying on the cross. And then the Father and the Son sent God the Spirit to change us, 
to sanctify us, causing us to believe the truth, to believe the Son. That's the gospel. Salvation in its entirety is the work of the triune God. The Father chooses before time, the Son loves in time, and the Spirit sanctifies for all time. That's the gospel. The gospel cannot be believed without belief in the Trinity. The Trinity is essential for the doctrine of the gospel and the doctrine of salvation. God's choosing here is not a matter of fairness. But if you were, we would all be sent to hell. We would all remain in our deadness, in our trespasses. Election is unmerited grace bestowed on sinners. We are also now saved on our own choice. Because we would only choose sin, and we would only choose sin and boast about it. But we are saved based on the Father's choice. For he always chooses to glorify his Son in us as we are being saved. That's the gospel. He's choosing us in eternity past, and he's guaranteeing our eternal future with him. So in a sense, the whole theme of this letter is catology. is only good news if election is true. The future is only secured if God already chose us in eternity past. But who are the elect? How do we know that he chose us? Well, that's where we go to verse 14. We see that those whom God chooses, he also calls. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's election is made manifest in his calling. Paul says in, in chapter eight, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. But how? How does he call? How does this calling actually happen? The apostle here is distinguishing two types of calling. The work of God, God calling, the regenerating, calling, transforming the heart of sinners. He says, he called you, God called you. And the work of the believer in calling other sinners to repentance by proclaiming the gospel. And Paul says, our gospel, traditions taught by us, our spoken words. So it is God divinely calling the sinner to life when the sinner humanly listens to his word being proclaimed. But it is God who effectively calls, transforms, regenerates those he chooses when believers proclaim the gospel to them. Paul, he did not know that God had chosen these brothers and sisters until he obeyed the command to proclaim the gospel to them when he was with them in person. Once they heard the general call of the gospel, their election was confirmed as they respond to the call of the gospel that God does in their hearts. They were born again through the proclamation of the gospel. The Spirit called them, transformed them to believe in the truth. I don't know if you ever heard of William Carey, but he is considered the father of foreign missions. If we go on mission trips today, if we have IMB today, if we have missionaries in the world today, it's due to what William Carey did. His missionary work started in the 17th century from his understanding of the doctrine of election. 
The pastors in his Baptist association, they insisted that God did not need them to save the heathen. God doesn't need us. Why are we going to go? God saves whoever he chooses. And they used the doctrine of election as an excuse to avoid evangelism. While William Carey understood that the doctrine of election demands evangelism to everyone. God's sovereign choosing is not an excuse for us to avoid evangelism. And it does obedience. We say, God will save them anyway. I don't have to do anything. But if God is the only one who knows who he chooses, we better share the gospel to everyone. Because we don't know. J.I. Packer words this argument way better than I ever could. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And he says this. And the doctrine of divine sovereignty would be grossly misapplied if we should invoke in such a way as to lessen the urgency and immediacy and priority and binding constraint of the evangelistic imperative. No revealed truth may be invoked to extenuate sin. God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give us an excuse for neglecting his orders. If God says, this is how I do it, we go and do it. We don't question it. We obey it. Have you been chosen by God to be saved? How would you answer that? All who respond to the gospel with repentance and faith belong to the elect of God. They are saved. Now, the other question is, have you responded to his call? Here at Redemption Church, every Sunday, the gospel is proclaimed. We also teach that all our members, all believers, should at every opportunity proclaim the gospel. And at this very moment, the gospel is being proclaimed to you. You are understanding the words that I'm saying, humanly. But the Lord is divinely working in your heart to believe. So understand today that in God's great mercy, he chose to send his only son to die on the cross and pay the price of your sins. He extended his love to you this morning. Receive it. And the Bible says that when you turn from your sins and you believe the truth of God's word, Jesus Christ coming to die for your sins, you will be saved. Do so today. If you do, you are saved. You are like the Thessalonians, beloved by the Lord, chosen by God, called by God as first fruits to be saved. And together with all the other believers that are already here in this room, and all the other believers spread all over the world, you will obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the future reward the Thessalonians forgot they had. Paul is reminding them that the lavish sum of glory is in store for them, and it's not being kept a secret. Jesus revealed his ocean of glory at his first coming, when he raised from the dead the only human being to ever do that. He washed us off of our sin with the waters of his glory. He cools us off with the spirit from the heat of the world's afflictions and suffering. And when he returns, he will bring us to enjoy the great swim of his glory in the ocean of his glory. We will have to, all we have to do is to stand firm, to persevere. Because if he saved us, he will not leave us without instruction. He gave us his word. He gave us Scripture. And Paul continues in verse 15 by, by reminding the Thessalonians that they should stand firm, not only because God chose them and called them, but also because God spoke and wrote to them. That's our second point. The God who speaks 
and writes, verse 15. Verse 15 says this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So then, meaning now that you remember that you are saved, now that you know that it's God's own choosing, and now that you remember that you responded to the gospel, stand firm in his words. The salvation that they have in Christ must be followed by our reliance on God's unchanging word. Notice that he says, brothers. Paul here is the one giving the command to stand firm, but he is also bound by his command. We will see in a moment that even though it is Paul speaking and writing apostolic tradition here, it is God's ultimate final words. So at the same time that he himself, as an apostle, possesses authority to pass down traditions from Scripture to them, he's also submitting under the authority of Scripture himself because he's a brother. Even though he's an apostle, he's also a brother. So Paul says that he taught them two types of tradition, the spoken tradition and the written tradition. This is a reference, clear reference for his sermons, his conversations when he was with them in person. And also the written tradition is a clear reference for his letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul is a Jew, and it is to this day a Jewish practice to affirm the authority of both the Moses' law and the oral traditions of the elders. But what's interesting in the Jewish practice is that their belief says that the oral traditions of the elders were written down in books in order for the next generation to remember. So technically, it's no longer oral. It's written. They, write it, they wrote it down, right? And it's funny because they refuse to affirm the authority of the New Testament, claiming that it's only human words. It's only written human tradition. They only hold to the Old Testament as the closed canon. But they themselves created their own Old Testament, New Testament, based on traditions of man. Paul is not talking about Jewish tradition here. Paul is talking about Christ's tradition. The resurrected human and divine Jesus passed down to the apostles his authority to humanly speak and write his divine nature, his div in his divine name. For example, we read Jesus praying to the Father for his apostles in John 17, 8. And he says this, For I have given them the words that you gave me, Father. And I have received, and they have received, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. So Jesus' words are God's words because Jesus is God. And then in 1 Corinthians 11.23, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And then he goes on to instruct them on the ordinances of the Lord's Supper. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, not Paul. Paul's words are Jesus' words because he received them from the Lord. Now, what the apostles passed down to the church is in their letters is the final and authoritative word of the Lord together with the Old Testament. Their oral traditions have been transcribed for our instruction and our obedience. What the Jews believed as two separate authoritative documents 
we believe that it's one close tradition that is stopped in the apostle. No more, it's closed. Now, how dangerous is it to misunderstand this? How dangerous is it to follow traditions of man as if it was from God that keeps people away from God in their sins? The Pharisees themselves, they try to trick Jesus to abide by the tradition of the elders. And he replied to them, quoting scripture, the Old Testament, and speaking scripture because he's God himself when he says this, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written? These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching doctrines, the commandments of man. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of man. In my country alone, and I'm sure that here in America is the same thing, in Brazil, we have millions of people enslaved to the traditions of man, calling it the Roman Catholic Church, thinking that they are saved based on sacraments, and baptism into the church. And also others here and everywhere in the world, they call themselves evangelical, but instead of standing firm and holding on to the traditions of Scripture, they twist the Scriptures and come up with their own rules and preferences. They want to do what they think it's best, rather than to submit to what God's Word says. And together with the Pharisees and scribes, many in our generation, are leaving the commandments of God and they're holding traditions of man. Let that not be said of us, church. God, help us to not do that. God, help us to stand firm and to hold on to the truth of God's word. Because Paul uses these two action verbs, stand firm and hold on, to convey this dual agency of biblical interpretation. Let me try to give you an example. I was once watching TV, and one of these crazy motorcycle arena competitions came up. And it was a pass-the-baton race, but instead of a baton, it was the actual motorcycle being passed down. There were three riders per team. It was a competition, but only one bike per team. The circuit was divided in two checkpoints, and in each checkpoint, there was a stand with the next rider waiting. So the first rider would approach with a bike to the first checkpoint. He would slow down almost to a stop. The next rider would hop on the bike, and the second rider would hop off. And then they would continue to the other checkpoint, and so on and so forth until they arrived to the finish line. So in order to win the race, all three riders had to know the bike really well. Any mistake, all details were crucial. If any of them made any mistake in passing the bike to the next rider, they would lose the race. So it required effort from every rider to do it well, but without the bike, they couldn't win. That's what Paul means by stand firm and hold on. We as a church, we are to stand firm on the Holy Spirit, trusting him to teach us and bring to our remembrance all that he has said to his apostles and to us in Scripture. But we are also to hold on to study hard, to spend time in his word, to sit under faithful teaching of his word. We must do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved. Workers who have no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And when we have both of these, we can teach it rightly. We can pass it along to the next generation 
knowing that the Holy Spirit will continue to work in them to continue uh, studying Scripture and interpreting Scripture. So that's why here at Redemption Church, we are a confessional church. We have confessions of faith, and our confession of faith starts with the Nicene Creed from 1381 A.D., and that is followed by an updated version of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith that was written in 1853. These statements of faith, they're not authoritative. They are summaries of the authoritative teachings of Scripture, and they serve to unify his church and to avoid confusion. The Nicene Creed, for example, was written to combat, to combat Arianism, which was the belief that Jesus was not God. The New Hampshire Confession of Faith came to unify Baptist churches in their understanding of the doctrine of election and to prioritize our evangelism together. So confessions of faith are also a good reminder to our church that we can remember that we did not discover the Bible by ourselves. The Bible was not given to us right now. There is a past tradition that was handed down to us. We are not innovating the faith. We are holding fast to the tradition of saints of old who also stood firm to the inspiration of the Spirit as they interpreted Scripture. And these are very important documents, but they can be added, changed, updated, based on circumstances of each generation. Let me give you an example. We as Redemption Church and New Hope Missionary Baptist Church, as Redemption Church and New Hope, we will vote in August 13th for two additions to our Confession of Faith. We are, why are we doing this? We're going to add an article on concerning humanity and an article on concerning the family. Why? Why are we doing this? Because in 1853, when the New Hampshire was written, they worked hard to compose the truth of God's word in that document, to articulate it clearly for their generation. But they didn't have to worry about what a human person was. They didn't have to worry about what a man and what a woman were. They knew that. It was part of their social lives, their personal lives. It was embedded in their culture. It was evident. It was implicit. It was assumed. These biblical principles were, is no longer assumed in our generation. It's not a reality for us what a man is, what a woman is. We have to constantly be explaining that to this generation. So as means of standing firm in what Scripture says, as well as to clarify the teaching of, uh, of God's Word to a lost world, we wrote this article concerning humanity. The same applies for the biblical teachings of family, the roles of husbands, wives, and children. So we wrote the article concerning the family. You see, we added to our confession of faith based on generational circumstances because we have a zeal for God's word. We are not creating doctrine. We are not inventing new traditions. We are simply standing firm and holding on to what Scripture teaches, even when culture rejects what Scripture has to say. What we can't do and what we won't do is add, change, and update the Bible. That doesn't change. That will never change. But every church must know what they believe from Scripture. As Pastor Tim often says, there's nothing more important about a church than what she believes. Nothing. Redemption Church believes in Scripture as the final and authoritative Word of God. And those beliefs are clearly articulated in our confession of faith. We believe that we can stand firm in the God who chose us and called us unto salvation. 
We believe that God also spoke and wrote his precepts for our instruction and our obedience. But we also believe that he did all that to comfort us in his work, to establish us in his word forever. And that leads us to our third point and final point for this morning. The God who comforts and establishes. Verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts. Establish them in every good work and word. After Paul had already encouraged them, already rebuked them again, already reminded them again, he concludes with prayer. He says, now, and now it's a typical mark of Paul to indicate a conclusion statement. He's about to finish up. But Paul loves to start and end with prayer. This is a great lesson for us. Begin with prayer as you're about to make a decision. End with prayer after the Lord grants you the decision or rejects what you're trying to decide. Begin and end with prayer, recognizing that he is sovereign over your life. Even he, as the one with authority to write scripture from Jesus, he, understand that he's, he understands his need of the Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father in order to, st- to send the comforter to the church. Now, pay attention here because verse 16 is the prelude of his prayer. It's not a prayer yet. His prayer of petition comes in verse 17. It is a prayer, but his petition itself comes in verse 17. In verse 16 is Paul's logical reasonable and articulate state of awe, of worship, of adoration of the God he prays to. His prayer also is Trinitarian. He uses the Trinity to start his prayer. Before he asks anything, he understands that he first must worship the Son and the Father, who through grace gave us the eternal comfort and hope of the Spirit. Paul, at the same time that he understands the role of each person in our salvation, he never separates them because they are one. It's one God, one Lord of our salvation. He wants to highlight the work of the Spirit as he prays, but he's rooting that in the Word and in the work of the Son and the Father. Paul in these verses teaches us that the power of our prayers only comes from the power of the one we pray to. His identity. If we pray prayers that are disconnected from who God is, that's no prayer at all. That's just some gibberish. You're just talking to the wall. I often hear prayers start with a simple, Dear God, we worship you for who you are. But as simple as this sounds, the truth of these words is more glorious than any petition you may have. His identity, his essence, his being is more perfect, is more worthy than any of your requests. But he still, even being worthy and perfect as he is, he still wants us to ask. And he says, ask, ask what you want and know that I will stand firm on my identity and I will answer based on my identity. Paul's petition in verse 17 is twofold. The Lord, he wants the Lord to comfort their hearts and he wants the Lord to establish them in every good work in word, and this just blows my mind. I'm sorry, but this is just so exciting. The art in Paul's words is fascinating. Pay attention. His request itself is rooted in God's being. 
He asks for comfort, the spirit that we just saw in verse 16. And he asks God to establish them, to stand firm, to hold on to every good work. God the Father choosing and calling us. And to every good word, God the Son speaking the incarnate word of God. Now that's a prayer of petition. That's how we ask the Lord to do things for us. As we pray to God, whatever the content of our petitions may be, it must come from what he has already given us. It must come from what he has already done for us. It must come from what he has already said to us in his scripture. And Paul prays in a context in which the Thessalonians were afraid. They were discouraged. They were alarmed. They thought that the day of the Lord had already come. And here they did not know what would happen. They were desperate. They didn't understand the future. Some of them were probably struggling with fear of persecution. And because of that, they were coiling in their duty to confront the sins of the world. Or they're just secluding themselves and staying hidden. I don't want to even see it, Lord. Coiling away. Some of them were probably struggling with anger and seeking vengeance for all the injustice coming to them because of their faith. People are persecuting me. I have to seek vengeance on them. Some of them were probably struggling with covetousness, desiring what the world had since they weren't seeing any immediate punishment for what they're doing. Since the Lord is not going to punish them, I might as well just join them. Their security was shaken. And Paul, in his wisdom, lavishes them with comfort in his prayer. He asks God to comfort their hearts, to remind them that the Spirit is with them. And the Spirit is reaffirming the forgiveness that they have in Christ. Nothing is going to change that. But also he asks God to establish them in what? In holiness. Because he asks for every work of conduct that they have. And that every word they speak may reflect the work that God already did for them. And the words that God already spoke to them in scripture. We may be shaken in our minds this morning. Even today. Perhaps like you, like me, you are afraid that the sins of this world are so great that in fear and anxiety, we choose not to face them in boldness and courage. We have fear of retaliation. We avoid talking to bosses and authoritative family members. Out of fear of losing status, of losing position, we keep the appearances and we don't want to share the gospel to the lost world. What are they going to think of me? Oh, Christian, be comforted this morning. Remember his word and remember his work because it says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's what he says in Isaiah 41.10. Perhaps like me, you are angry at this injustice being done to you in the past or even today. It could be as simple as someone cutting you off at traffic. Or as grievous as betrayal, maybe theft, or having a family member taken from you. This is wrong. It's unjust. And in your right desire for justice, the deadly desire for vengeance cripples you in bitterness. Oh, Christian, remember, be comforted this morning. Remember that his word and his work, beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He will repay. 
He will not abandon you in injustice. He will repay either on the cross in forgiveness or either in hell through eternal condemnation. And you can't add to any of these. You can't add to anyone's salvation and you can't add to anyone's condemnation. All belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he chooses to save, you ought to praise the Lord because he saved one that was unjust. Perhaps like me, you were tired of it all. And the apparent lack of punishment for sin in this world, and you are seduced to the sins of the world. Why be a Christian, you ask, if I could be enjoying all of that? Why persevere? You struggle with covetousness. You struggle with greed. You see everybody doing it over and over again, and the rain keeps falling on them. They keep being blessed. They're not punished for their sin, and you are attracted to their sin. You want to have what you don't need because you already have Christ. Oh, Christian, be comforted and remember his word and his work. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So we as a church, as Christians, as saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a longing to see holiness in the world. We are here learning from Paul to ask God to give us his holiness to live in this world. The comfort of God is visible in our lives when we are established in his work and in his word. Do you want to see God's holiness in the world? Is that what you want? So go and be holy. Ask God to establish you in your sanctification and fight against sin. As the world is succumbing in promiscuity, we as the church, we must rise in the holiness of our God. There's no greater source of security for a Christian than living a life of holiness. Because when you're living a life of holiness, you're evidencing that God chose you from eternity past, that he saved you when Jesus Christ rose from the grave and paid the penalty of your sin, and now he's sanctifying you for your whole life. You're proving that you're a Christian, not because of what you're doing, because of what Christ and the Holy Spirit is doing in you. For this holiness only comes from God, and God is our security. Children of God ought to, leave and, ought to live and speak in accordance with his identity. Our words and our works must reflect the words and works of Christ. Our works and our words must be soaked by the comforts that we, already, that we already received in the Spirit. So yes, we can experience His eternal comfort. Yes, we can experience it right now by being holy as He is holy. Because when we do that, we are reminded that the Spirit is working in us and we are comforted. So the next time you ask a loved one, haven't I told you this already? Remind them of the gospel. Let your words reflect the works of God in your life. Build one another up in comfort in the spirit. Remember that when we are impatient with one another, Christ is patient with us. He has forgiven us. God has chosen us. He has called us to stand firm in his authoritative written word. So that we can live, we can live knowing that we are comforted knowing that we are established by him and in him, in his work and in his words. And my prayer is that you and me, like the Thessalonians, 
we will no longer be shaken in our minds, but that we may stand firm in the truth of God's word. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for who you are. We are humbled this morning, understanding the great work of salvation that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit did for us. From eternity past, he chose us. And Christ comes and pays the penalty of our sin. He calls us into repentance and faith. And the Spirit sanctifies us through all eternity. Father, we are so grateful. We are thankful because this work reminds us that we can be holy as you are holy. We can stand firm in the truth of God's word. We can understand that we were given instructions so that we can obey. So help us in our sin. Help us in our despair. Help us in our questions about the future to rely on your word. To understand, Father, that we are secure in Christ. That Jesus and the, Lord, the word of Jesus will never change. That there's nothing that can shake the stability of our foundation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the schemes of the devil may come into our lives, we may rest secure in the forgiveness of Christ. Help our church to remember that. Help us this morning to be convicted of our own sins, but to remember the gospel and to know that we have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ if we have responded in belief and repentance. So I pray that this morning the call of the gospel may be clear in the hearts of those that you have chosen and that you have called them and that you may call them into salvation by the regenerating power of your Holy Spirit this morning. Save them, I pray. Save them for the glory of your name. 